0: Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Ghost Stories. Throughout the month of October, I will be sharing my retelling of different hauntings, possessions, ghoulish stories, what have you, that our world has to offer. This first episode is going to be a doozy. There are basically three parts to what is known as the Demon Murder Trial. So, before we get into the actual murder and the trial and the family controversy and drama that happens after, we have to start with a possession. So this is known as the demon murder trial because Arnie Cheyenne Johnson is the first known person in the United States to use demonic possession as a defense claim. Most of this episode, and my knowledge, is going to be based off some smattering of articles, but also... Discovery Channel's A Haunting, Season 2, Episode 4, Where Demons Dwell. This is back in the 1980s, to be exact, 1980, in Brookfield, Connecticut. Arnie Johnson and his girlfriend Debbie decide to leave the city to start a new life. Arnie is about 19 or 20 at the time, and Debbie is 25. And I get it. Living in the city is expensive, so they spend most of their life savings to move out to the country near Debbie's family to get a house. They're your typical couple. They seem very nice and sweet, even in the episode of A Haunting where they're actually interviewed. They seem like your average couple. Arnie is a tree surgeon's assistant, whatever the fuck that is, and Debbie is a dog groomer. They decide to go to this beautiful historic town and the, you know, like, they're from the 1700s, the town, and they go and they find this house that they really like, and they bring along Debbie's younger brother, whose name is David. David is the center of part one of the story of the possession. Well, I guess the first possession. Now, if sometimes this story gets a little confusing, that's because it is. The Discovery Channel basically portrays Debbie and David as the only two siblings of, like, a single mother. And Arnie is just himself and his mom. When in actuality, David and Debbie have, like, three other brothers, and their father is actually in the picture the entire time. Arnie also has a sister that's important later. So Debbie and Arnie take little David, I think he's about 9 or 10, to go check out this new house. It's nice, it's spacious, it's probably held a lot cheaper than, you know they were staying in the city but somewhere they can build a home start a family the previous tenants have left their bed and David is well I don't know why I wrote that very specific note that they left their bed maybe the beds haunted it could be that for some reason the set dressers just decided like we're gonna put a bed mattress in this room and just leave it here and we don't have a budget to decorate everything else it was Obviously, it stood out for me for some reason because I wrote it down. Anyway, David is left in the room to sweep, and everything seems normal. Then he freaks out, and he runs out of the room and out of the house, claiming that an old man pushed him. He described the old man as having burnt-looking skin and a plaid shirt that was torn at the elbow. In a different account, he's actually in there with uh, his brother when the door closes and locks them in. Until one of the other brothers is able to pry it open. Either way, something crazy went down in this room that's freaking David out. And I understand for casting purposes, maybe they just wanted to leave everybody else out. Or maybe it's the family drama that we will get to at the end of this episode. The scariest part of family drama. So Debbie is like, okay, David's just a little kid. Maybe he just wants to play and he doesn't want to work. But he's so scared that he doesn't even want to go near the house. So, you know, after spending some time cleaning up the place and getting it ready, they go back to David and Debbie's mom's house. Even back at David and Debbie's mom's house, David keeps seeing an old man saying that he hears him, and he sees him at the house, like he's having visions of the old man and a scared animal at the new house that Arnie and Debbie want to move into. The old man, David says, doesn't want them to move in. So... While David's telling them all this, Debbie's kind of like, I don't know, but David seems freaked out, so she asks for a sign. And then, suddenly there's an earthquake. Debbie starts to buy into this, and Arnie begins to wonder too, because he really genuinely knew David was scared. But, low-key, they already paid two months rent, so they're moving in. And like, I get it. I'm in LA. If someone was like, hey, here's a two-bedroom, two-bath in West Hollywood, with parking for $1,500 a month the only catch is there's a demon that lives in the apartment I don't know if I would turn it down you know I feel like I'd have to think about that and also in their defense it is a lot to take you know the scared ramblings of a child and if his imagination is running wild for them to stop and give up their life savings and not start this new life that they're really excited to start so they go back the next day to keep moving in, but they see scratch marks all over the doors. If you remember, David said he saw a scared animal in his vision. And they go back the next day, and there's scratch marks all over the door. So Arnie and Debbie decide, nah, we good. <laughs> We're gonna give up the house. We chill. But Arnie's mom comes. And Arnie's mom, actually, the whole plan was to have her live with them. And she gave up her apartment, which she probably had a sweet deal going and whatever. You know, it's the biggest city in Connecticut with, like, four horses. And she's like, what the heck? No. And the, the couple try to tell her what's going on, but the mom's skeptical. Like, what, you're going off the visions of a kid? There's some scratch marks? No way. And so the mom decides to stay in the house. Now Arnie... Who throughout the entire thing, up until, you know, when he murders somebody, is really portrayed, even after he murders someone, as this really great guy. He's heroic. He's loving. He's understanding. He's just this, like, really awesome guy, which is impressive considering he's only 19 or 20 at the time. I'm not saying that, you know, 19, 20-year-old guys aren't great guys. But there's a maturity that they give Arnie that is impressive for that age. And maybe it's true. I feel like it's this whole situation is very convoluted. And I'll get into why I think that is. But this is the kind of guy, you know, he is. So he understands where his mom is coming from. She feels abandoned. They had a whole plan. She gave up her life in, you know, whatever city, New Haven, I don't know. And they are now changing their minds based off of nothing they can prove still at the mother's house so now we're most of the story is going to keep taking place at debbie and david's mom's house david's freaking out he keeps saying that the old man turns into a beast and he's going to fly over the treetops to come and hurt him and he's telling david that he needs to hurt his family and the people he loves they're a little like shit you know But still, they're at the point where they're concerned about David. They're not jumping to, like, demonic possession, which, you know, makes sense. So the next day rolls around, and everything's fine until David says that the old man's in their house. So the next day, everything's fine. They're at a park, having a picnic, doing whatever people did in the 80s. And they get back to the house, and David's like, I'm not going in there. The old man is in the house. And Ari's like, okay, I'll go check it out. So Arnie, being the hero that he is, goes in and checks out the house, and everything's fine. So everyone else goes in, but there's a sound coming from the attic. And he goes up to check it out, and they don't see anything. So it's nothing, but what could it be then? David's odd behavior starts in July of 1980. David himself now is not just saying he's seeing things but his body is freaking out he's it looks as if he's being knocked around like a rag doll he's being hit and like pulling across the room and lurching and just doing weird exorcism shit and i think this is just one of the most honest slash low-key savage statements i have ever heard but there's a quote from his mother In regards to his crazy movements, where she says, he can't even do a sit-up. He's too fat. (laughs) Keeping it real, mom, keeping it real. So you have a kid doing moving around, who's too fat to move on his own, I guess. And no one can see what's happening. They don't know why the breath is leaving his body. They don't know why he's being rocked around. So that that's the point where Debbie and the mom, Judy, go to their Catholic priest. Now, this is something I didn't know was a thing, but I guess it is kind of cool, is that they actually have to do a full-on investigation before the church can get involved. There's a very special branch within the church that deals with exorcisms, and apparently true demonic possession is actually very rare. If you believe in it at all. Full disclaimer, I only believe in ghosts at night, so I'm recording this during the day. So you're going to get a more skeptical outlook for me right now. But I do think it's great that, you know, the church has to get the facts before they go and torture mentally ill people. So that's cool. Now, if it's an actual demonic possession, then it's like, well, that's a lot of red tape to go through. while well, you know, your soul's being torn apart. Anyway, the church decides they're going to investigate. But in the meantime, pray, light candles, holy water, you know, the whole shebang. And so they do a little bit of, like, candlework prayer, and it seems like the kid's possessed. It's not helping, like, the chanting and the water and the fire of the candles. It's not helping. And if anything, it's making things worse. He's freaking out even more. So a priest comes in. It's like, okay, we still got away on the exorcism, but the priest comes and tries to cleanse the house of evil. And David reacts, you know. So clearly there's something evil inside of David. But again... They just cleanse the house. It's on exorcism. You know, the family feels a little bit better, but it's not enough. So the priest decides he's going to consult some experts on the demonic and hauntings. And this is where we meet Ed and Lorraine Warren, a demonologist and a clairvoyant. So a little background on them really quick because they're actually going to come up in a few of my episodes because they've investigated the real-life stories behind a lot of major movies like the Amityville Horror and Annabelle, I think The Conjuring as well. And this was almost made into a, a TV show as well except for all the controversy that happens after the trial of the murder that we haven't even got to yet. Ed passed away in 2006, so he's not in this episode of the haunting possessions or whatever the discovery show is called. And Lorraine actually passed away in April of this year. Ed's the demonologist, Lorraine's the clairvoyant. And Lorraine said in the episode, like, you could cut attention with a knife when you walked into that house. People were scared. And they said that when David lifted his head up, I imagine he was, you know, doing like heads up, seven of, you could see that it was no longer David. And he said to them, I know who you are. And the Beast, who is possessing him, like the Beast, like capital B, Satan, Beelzebub, Lucifer, the Beast, is who they think is possessing him, told them, Ed and Lorraine, the Warrens, all this information about them. This very high level of psychic ability that can only come from evil, which I got my own opinion about. But Lorraine was saying in the episode that at the time, she didn't want to freak them out and tell them how bad this was. Now this was a very very bad situation as she could see this black misty figure next to David and so they're like first things first we're going to interview the family and then we'll talk to David or whatever's inside of David. Debbie and her mother Judy told the Warrens that they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and that red marks had appeared on his neck afterwards. I'm assuming this is from Wikipedia giving the little footnote number. He also started exhibiting animalistic qualities like growling and hissing. He would speak in otherworldly voices, recite passages from the Bible or Paradise Loss. The family, the Glatzels, recounted how each night a family member would stay awake with David when he was suffering through his spulsion, spulsions. That's uh, a combination of spasms. <laughs> Fuck told them that each night a family member would stay awake with David while he was going through his spasms and his convulsions. He was also having visions and coming up with other precognitions, one of which actually was the murder that Arnie would later commit. Now while this sounds super convincing, in order to get the church to actually authorize an exorcism, you have to convince them beyond a shadow of a doubt. So. Ed went and interviewed the Beast. And Ed said the first thing that the Beast said to him was, I could throw you out a window right now. It was a little boy. And he asked some questions and does different tests to see if this is something that, like, the boy would know or if this is knowledge beyond that the Beast would know. Judy, the mom, was like, what if we just moved? You know, let's just get out of here. Maybe Connecticut's a little too, like, you know, spooky spooky. But Lorraine said that there's a difference between haunted houses and haunted people. And that David specifically was haunted and that I would follow them wherever they went. Which, out of context, the idea of a haunted house versus haunted people is kind of poetic. You know, it's like houses and homes hold memories and they can hold suffering and loss. And sometimes getting out of a space can be emotionally or psychically very good for you. But if you're a haunted person, that follows you. I thought that was, like, really beautiful in some way. So, at this point, the Warrens are convinced that he is being possessed, and that is indeed Satan. That their son is still there. Uh, Remember, the father is involved, even though he's not really mentioned. That their son is, like, still there, but he is possessed, and they need to get an exorcism. But it could take months to get an exorcism approved, so they're going to try for a minor one, even though this is the devil inside of this boy. Now, something I thought was really interesting about what Lorraine said about Connecticut is that Connecticut is a very old state. She was, like, literally she was like, every other church building is going to have, like, a portal to hell. Everything's haunted, demons everywhere, ghosts. So if you live in Connecticut, you're fucked, basically. I think it is interesting that they're basing off demons and hell and Satan and all that and ghosts off of the whites' history of what counts as old because Native Americans have been in this country long before. But maybe they just have their shit together and they just don't get possessed or... I don't know, it just seems like a very narrow perspective. And Arnie's like, well, shit, my mom's still in that house where the devil came out of. So they go back to the rental house to rescue his mom, but she doesn't want to move. She's like, I'm fine. And she did seem fine, so I'm like, okay, I guess. Sure. Now, the Warrens leave, and uh, some time goes by a few days, and everything seems fine. Until David loses all control. Arnie decides, like, this is insane. This child is going through so much. So he decides to challenge the demon's. Which you should never challenge a demon. They're very egotistical. And he decides like, to do the whole, like, why don't you pick on someone your own size, see? And basically challenges him to possess him instead of David. It's not in the episode, which one of the reasons makes me feel like the episode is also trying to make Arnie look good. Because the, the episode of Deceptive Hauntings or Haunted Houses or whatever definitely doesn't mention the murder at all. But apparently, the Warrens have specifically told him, you know, don't challenge the demons. You know, don't try to mess with it. Like, it sucks that he's in David, but it's going to be worse if you try to take him on or challenge him in any way. And he didn't listen to them. After that, a few days go by. And Arnie is just doing errands, running around town in his car or truck or whatever a tree surgeon's assistant drives. And his engine locks. And he can't get, like, he has no control of the car. The car just starts speeding. The engine starts going. He can't even open the doors to get out. And he sees a dark figure, a double-looking figure, appears out of nowhere, and the car just goes, and he loses control. (laughs) I laugh because the warrants are like, just go see an exorcist. And so Arnie does go see a priest, and the priest gives him a blessed crucifix. So it's like, at least in the meantime, this can protect you, and hopefully... The demon won't take you up on your stupid challenge. So he's home and, you know, he's getting paperwork done. I'm assuming, you know, to consent to the exorcism or something. I don't know why I wrote that down. But David says that he knows about the crucifix. And the necklace goes flying across the room. And then Judy, the mom, throws holy water on him. And literally, like, the kid freaks out and passes out. Now, according to David, because I guess this is like a Harry Voldemort situation where, like, Their souls are attached, the demon, and David, so David's learning information as well. He said that the beast goes to a well that's behind the rental house. And that's how he goes to and from hell. But the thing is, is there's no well behind that house. And Arnie's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm getting my mom out of that house. So he gets his crucifix back on, and we go to the house. And... (laughs) Now, this is a house where, like, a woman's been living for a while at this point, but, like, the way they showed in the episode is they open the door very slowly and creepily, and nobody's in the house. And then, in good old Scooby-Doo fashion, Arnie's like, why don't you keep looking in the house, you know, to Debbie? Debbie's with him. And I'll go check out the back. (laughs) The actor who plays Debbie, when the character plays, the guy who plays Arnie is like, You stay and look around by yourself. I'm going to go out and check out things. The way her face falls is so funny. It's priceless. So Arnie goes to the back and he looks for a well, but there's no physical well, but he finds a hole in the ground. And this is the well. A black figure returns and comes, I guess, out of the well or the bushes or something And Arnie is just transfixed and stares into the dark, deep pits that he has where his eyes should be. And it just draws him in. Arnie says the last thing he remembers is seeing those lack of eyes. According to Debbie, she's in the house, freaked out, looking around, trying to find the mom. Which, why it's so hard to find an adult woman in, like, a small house, I don't know. She's looking around the house and finds Arnie's crucifix on the ground. He had dropped it somehow. And then Arnie shows up, and he's possessed. And then she slaps him across the face, and he comes to, and everything's Gucci. Which I, I think is so funny, and I don't know if it's, like, children, maybe they are easier to possess, but, like, they're, like, doing all this shit to David, and all she does is slap Arnie, and he's like, I'm back. And Arnie says the last thing he remembered was seeing this dark creature, and all of a sudden he's in the house, being slapped by his girlfriend. So Lorraine Warren comes back in October of 1980. And she tells the police that things are getting dangerous here, which I can't, like, imagine. Like, this is, like, small town. We're talking, like, the cops are actually probably eating donuts, small town. And they get a call from some random lady who's like, Don't worry, I'm a professional, I'm a psychic, and just so you know, up at 42 Sycamore Lane above Cherry Tree Hill, that there is a possession going on and things are starting to get a little out of hand. And they're like, lady, we're just eating donuts, okay? Lorraine goes to visit the family again and she's like, they look terrible. The mother is being patient, but things are getting crazy, right? Now, <laughs> whether or not the police took Lorraine's warning seriously, David did try to kill Arnie with a knife. Of course, Arnie doesn't blame David at all because it's the demon. So Lorian's like, okay, we're going to try to expedite this exorcism. And at this point, the beast has called upon more demons because he wants his soul. You know, he did a few months of leasing, a little test driving, wasn't sure if he wanted to make the commitment. But now he's like, yep, I want to purchase. I want to be an owner of this new soul. And so I guess Satan himself isn't strong enough to get this boy's soul, so he calls upon more demons. So now David has a bunch of demons in his soul and in his body, and they're watching him 24 hours a day, someone's always with him, they're stressed out, they're tired, but they still have to go to work. That tree surgeon needs his assistant. Don't think this was said in the episode, but David's condition actually got so bad that Arnie and Debbie moved out. They got an apartment of their own, and they left her mother's house because they just couldn't deal with it anymore. And it's at this point that Debbie is hired as a dog groomer by a new resident named Alan Bono. And we are going to come back to him because he is very important. Five weeks have gone by, you know, since the priest had blessed the house, and they finally get approved for a minor exorcism. And they're really desperate at this point, so it has to work. And they're full-on have this little boy restrained by his arms and legs as they try to exorcise all the demons from him at one point he's able to break the restraints and he scratches one of the priests and grown men have to work hard to restrain him back down you know in the show they showed doing the sign of the cross where he's like screaming and all this other catholic stuff at one point he stops breathing and they're like we lost david but turns out they got one of the demons out But there's still more. And they have to keep doing this over and over again for every single demon that's in him. Lorraine says at one point he actually levitates. And throughout all this, you know, they're finally able to exercise the demons out of David and their love grows stronger and they're connected as a family. Blah, blah, blah. Now, what they didn't show was that David's parents actually took him to a psychiatrist and their family physician. Remember, David's dad is somehow involved, even though he's not shown in the episode at all. And to add a little foreshadowing to the family controversy, comes up, I believe it's only Debbie and Arnie and Lorraine who are actually interviewed throughout the episode of the Haunting Possession thing. Something I think that's very interesting is that the doctors diagnose David as a normal kid with a slight learning disability, though he has trouble sleeping this is important for later, the family controversy. After Debbie and Arnie have moved out of Debbie's mother's house, that's when Arnie's behavior also starts to get a little weird. Similar to David, he'll fall into a trance-like state where he'll growl and hallucinate, but then have no memory of it. What the show doesn't touch on is what this all laid the groundwork for was the demon murder trial. I'm gonna be real with you guys. This is gonna get confusing. Because... I can't find, like, a very clear story of what exactly happened. Now, this did take place in 81, so records aren't, you know, if they didn't upload the articles that were in at the time to the internet, I don't have access to them. On February 16th, 1981, Arnie called in sick to work and joined Debbie, his sister Wanda, and Debbie's 9-year-old cousin Mary at the kennel where Debbie works. Bono, who's 40, Was actually their landlord in addition to being Debbie's boss and was also described as being a friend. So Arnie's calling in sick, goes to hang out with some people he loves and he's friends with at the kennel where Debbie works, and then they decide to go to lunch. Now, from what I was able to gather, it sounds like Arnie and Bono go to a bar to get lunch. I guess Arnie's 21 at this point, and it's drinks on Bono. Debbie takes the girls to lunch, I guess they're under 21, and, you know, people lunch. But then they come back, and this is where there's two different stories, in addition to Wanda's account. So, the first way it's told, one of the first ways I read it, is that they get back and Bono's drunk, and he's getting agitated. And Debbie tells everyone to get out of the room, but Bono grabs Mary and won't let go. And said that Arnie actually went back home to the apartment, and that she has to call him for help. That's like what one thing I read was, but most of the other stories sound like all of them went to the kennel together. But this first one is he comes back to try to deal with Bono. Another account is that they all, everybody after lunch, met back up at the kennel, and Bono... And Arnie started getting into an argument and Debbie tried to get everybody out of the room and during the argument That's when Arnie started to growl and hiss Now according to Wikipedia Wanda, Arnie's sister, recounts the following events to the police Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between Bono and Arnie Wanda tried to pull Arnie away, get out of the fight But Arnie was growling like an animal and then he drew a five-inch pocket knife out and started stabbing Bono and stabbed him more than twenty times. Several hours later, Bonnie was found Bonnie. Bono was found dead. According to Arnie's lawyers, Bono had suffered, quote, four or five tremendous wounds. These wounds were mostly to the chest, and one stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. So Arnie not only stabbed Bono 20 times, but also tried gutting him, basically. And his lawyers are like, it's like four or five tremendous wounds. Nah, bitch. Like, he tried gutting the bro, okay? That's really intense. Arnie was later found two miles away from the site of the murder at another bar. Uh, He was held at Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of $125,000. And a fact that I think is important is that this was the first murder in the history of Brookfield. So, why the fuck did Barney—wow, that's their celebrity couple name, Bono and Arnie Barney. So, why would Arnie do something like this? They're described as actually being best friends. And people did notice that there was a change in behavior in Arnie after the whole exorcism thing. It's said that there are four times that, before the murder, that Arnie was showing, like, demonic possession behavior, the trances, the growling, and all that. But otherwise, he had no criminal record. He was described as, like, a good guy. You know, he dropped out of school so he could help make money to help his mom. You know, he bought her a car just so she wouldn't have to walk to and from work. Like, this is a caring guy. This is the guy who's like, I'll go into the house to see what the old man beast creature is so no one else gets hurt. And then he brutally murders one of his really good friends. According to one article I read, Debbie called her father after the murder and said he didn't mean to do it. You know how he gets when he's drinking. Who heard it? I don't know. The article did not quote this very interesting piece of information. I guess it's hearsay anyway. But I don't know. To me, stabbing someone and trying to gut them 20 times just because you're drunk, that seems a little much. Seems a little much. And there's another article where the barmaid, (laughs) clearly I copy and pasted that, said that Arnie was drinking heavily. So in previous other articles, it's saying that Bono was mostly the one drinking, but then we have eyewitness testimony of the barmaid, saw Arnie drinking heavily with Bono. I didn't think he was 21 at this point, but I guess he is. And over three hours, they shared 13 to 15 glasses of wine. And there are other people who saw this as well, but I don't know what that means to share 13 to 15 glasses of wine over three hours. I guess that could be, like, say, seven glasses each. So over three hours, they both drank two bottles of wine. But at the same time, it doesn't say who drank how much. The only people who witnessed the murder were his girlfriend at the time, Debbie. And one article says that there was like two sisters there, like Debbie's sister and his sister. Then it says Debbie's cousin and his sister. So it's not very clear on who was actually there, but it was like female people who would care about Arnie. So they could have claimed the whole possession thing as a reason to defend, but if they're all like fans of Arnie's, they could have said it was defense. Um, like Bono started it, but they're kind of like, no, Arnie just stabbed him after, you know, drinking. It, it's, I don't know. I think the whole thing is a little weird. And to me, it's odd. I feel like I can't get you know, a straight answer, like, from the internet of what happened. I'm sure there's probably a detailed book or account or something of, like, everything that happened around it, but I personally could not find it to piece it together, so this is what we're dealing with, people. The day after the murder happens, Lorraine Warren calls up Brookfield police again, I'm sure she's their favorite person at this point, and says that at the time of the murder, Arnie was possessed, and the media just explodes, it's fueled in part by the Warrens, this media quote-unquote blitz, whose agents uh, promised, like, lectures, a book deal, and even a movie deal. Now, due to family drama that happens, that we haven't even gotten to, the movie doesn't happen, but they are the people who are behind the movies like Annabelle, Amityville Horror, The Conjuring... And so the Warrens make money off this. They're not just in it for, like, saving people. They're in it to, I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, which I guess I'm going to do throughout this entire podcast, so most people are dead that I talk about. But they're fueling this whole thing. At this time, this is the 80s, so satanic panic is becoming, like, a thing for those of you who are into true crime. Satanic panic was this idea that mostly young people were getting into the cults and devil-worshipping, and were murdering people. Now, there's so few actual murders linked to cults and the occults and witchcraft that I don't even know how it started. I wasn't alive when all this was going down. But satanic panic is happening, and then you have this huge murder trial happening where they're literally using demonic possession as a defense. Around this time, a Gallup poll said 35% of Americans believe that the devil was an actual man figure. I don't know if that's what they put in the Gallup poll, but that's what I wrote down. So he's a man figure. Also, what's making things even more, like, mysterious is that the church isn't releasing any specifics on what happened. So the public's imagination is really only working with the exorcist, which recently had come out in the last few years. And so that's the world they're living in right now. With this media circus, satanic panic, and people being like, this is the fucking exorcist. Like, my dad was telling me when that movie came out, people were literally, like, passing out in movie theaters, like, throwing up. It was a horrifying movie. And it was the first time that horror went into religion, into things that people actually believe in, unlike Dracula and the Wolfman and stuff. Arnie is arrested and put on trial, and... I don't know how to say this guy's name. His lawyer, Martin Manilla. Manilla. It's M-I-N-N-E-L-L-A. So I don't know if the double L is an E sound. But he is receiving calls from all over the world about what was being called the demon murder trial. His lawyer actually traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved with two similar cases. Neither of them went to trial, though. But basically cases where demonic possession was the defense. And he was actually going to fly in an exorcism specialist from Europe and even threatened to subpoena the priest who oversaw David's exorcism if he uh, wouldn't cooperate. So they were literally building a whole case that, he, that Arnie was possessed as his defense. So the trial finally takes place just in time for Halloween on October 28, 1981. Now, Arnie a lawyer, attempts to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession, but the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, is like, no. No. Callahan said that this defense cannot ever happen in a court of law because there's a lack of evidence and it would be, quote, ir- irrelative and unscientific to allow any related testimony. And then, so, of course, the defense chose to imply that it was self-defense that Arnie acted in. Because of this, the jury was legally not allowed to consider demonic possession as an explanation for the murder. So the jury deliberated for three days and ended up convicting Arnie on November 24, 1981, of first-degree manslaughter. It was reduced from murder because the prosecution couldn't prove intent. He was sentenced to the full term of 10 to 20 years, though he only served five. The judge said he gave the full sentence because of his apparent lack of remorse. Now, we gotta dissect this and look at this for, like, a minute or two. The thing is, is, like, juries can't know anything about anything related to a case, right? It's probably easier in the 80s to block out media from juries, where they can't know anything about the media blitz around the demon murder trial. I don't know if they got to see the lawyer attempt to put the po- the demon possession as a defense because the thing is is juries are not allowed to like take certain things they hear into consideration but they do for example if there's an expert witness of a cop for a robbery case and the defense questions the cop in a cross-examination and they say something like weren't you investigated f- for a racial bias in a homicide that happened five years ago even if the prosecution is like objection and relevance and the lawyer or the judge and the judge is like sustained that means that legally the jury cannot take that question into consideration at all but the jury still heard that this cop is racist. So lawyers tried to slip in little things. But for the actual full trial, they couldn't bring up anything related to the exorcist. Well, the exorcism and the movie as well, they can bring that up. So I don't know if they heard anything about that when they did the, the trial. But something that is so interesting to me, there's two things. One is that the prosecution couldn't come up with intents. When it comes to trying people, it's motive means an opportunity. And not being able to prove motive makes it very difficult to actually try someone. It's probably because there are so many witnesses who, even though they're his family, were like, yeah, he did it. That's probably why they were able to convict him. But something to keep in mind during this whole thing is that this was Brookfield's, or whatever this city's name is, this was their first ever murder. Now, again, if you're in into true crime, you know this, but the 80s were kind of a mess when it came to police investigation. There were so many things that they did wrong when they would go to crime scenes. And so it's already an issue then. DNA isn't really a thing, or at least no one believes in it. And then this is the small town's first murder case. So I do wonder how many holes there were because the police department didn't really know what they were doing, and it's not their fault. They have never dealt with it before. I don't know if they would have brought in somebody who maybe had dealt with the murder before, or maybe because like it was not like a whole like true crime, like mystery-solving, like puzzle murder that they did themselves. But to me, there's just so many holes. You know, a lot of the witness testimony doesn't match up. There's absolutely no motive. It's, to me, it's an odd case to begin with. And then you throw in demons on top of it. What I also think is really interesting is that Arnie showed no remorse. You know, if you're like possessed, let's just say hypothetical, you're possessed and you kill one of your really good friends while possessed, wouldn't you show at least some sort of emotion? And I don't know, maybe he was possessed at trial so the demon was like, yeah, we're going to get him fucking jail. But I don't know. To me, there's just so many weird holes about it. And who knows? Maybe I don't know how to do research anymore. I've been out of college for a while. NBC made a made-for-TV movie, The Demon Murder Case. And there was a major motion picture that was in the works, like most of the Warrens' other cases become. But it never happened because of there's internal conflict. And a book came out called The Devil in Connecticut. So now we're at the family drama. The family was paid $2,000 for the first publication of the book. But David and his brother Carl Jr. sued in 2006 for a republication as a violation of a right to privacy, libel, and emotional distress. And this could be why David himself wasn't in the episode of The Haunting Show along with anyone else in his immediate family besides his sister. So David was actually the youngest of five, And Carl claims he never gave consent for the book, but he was also 16 at the time, so I don't really know where the rights are when it comes to minors giving consent. The family was told that they were going to make millions off this book and it could help get Arnie off on the murder. But he felt like his brother's mental illness and his family were being exploited by the Warrens. And that's one of the reasons why I mentioned that they took David to see a psychiatrist earlier. And it's because of this claim. I know it was the 80s, but to me it's interesting that he was diagnosed with a learning disability when he's showing signs of schizophrenia, split personality, bipolar, I'm not a doctor, but something a little bit more than, I don't know, like dyslexia. The exorcism and what happened to David and his family only made national headlines because of Arnie's murder case. Carl said that it really alienated the boys and made their lives very difficult. Carl was 16 at the time, so I'm very sure it was hard in his social life. High school's already a bitch. We've all seen, like, breakfast club and 16 candles. Like, the 80s were rough for teenagers. And to add, like, oh, your brother's possessed, and then, like, your brother-in-law or future brother-in-law is a murderer. Probably a very difficult time. But it's also interesting because, I don't know, at 16, you'd probably notice your brother's levitating and speaking in Latin and other tongues. I feel like it's hard to say if this possession actually happened, because you can keep going back and forth in a lot of different ways about this, right? He might have actually been possessed, and Arnie maybe was possessed too, but Carl, he has a construction company. In 2006, this book coming back up, it would have made him look bad, it would have been more scandal around his family, and would have hurt his business. On the other hand, there is a chance that Arnie, who is young, 19 to 21 when all this is happening and went through something kind of dramatic may have also developed mental illness as well because that's an age when it starts to manifest. A lot of the things are very specific the hissing, the growling, the no motive around Bono's death, the lack of remorse a lot of it's very odd and nothing to me really adds up. So on the one hand you can say they're both possessed on the other hand they're both suffering from different forms of mental illness. Or maybe there was more around the Bono investigation that the cops, who have never dealt with a murder, you know, looked into. Who knows if they looked into seeing if he was having an affair with Debbie, or if he was unfairly charging them, like, rent or not helping them with their apartment, because he also was the landlord. Maybe there were other issues underlying the situation. And maybe he wanted to rob him who knows but i can't find any information on it and they could have done all of that and may not be out here and it's just so overshadowed by the possession now the author of the book jared brittle said that everyone signed off on the book they gave full consent he has hundreds of hours of interviews with the family including carl jr which i couldn't find online i mean it is one of those things where it's like Well, why doesn't Carl say, make those interviews public and you'll see that, like, we didn't actually believe that he was possessed. He didn't seem to do that. You know, on the other hand, they could be like, everyone thought he was possessed, let's show the videos, and he'd be like, no, 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 I don't want it out there. Debbie and Arnie, who were married after um, Arnie's release, which, that's some powerful love right there. I mean, he was in jail for five years, and she witnessed the murder and stood by her man and got married and you know I gotta say before I get into like the last bit of the controversy Arnie does seem really likable in the video he just they just seem like an average couple he seems nice I'm not saying that nice people or sociopaths can't put on like you know facades or nice people can't snap and murder people but he seems totally good from what I could see, um, not like as in a good person, but he seems to be doing well. And there is never any talk of him getting an exorcist or him getting mental help. Because if he was possessed, then they would have had to either get the demon out or maybe the demon was just over it, bored in jail. The Debbie and Arnie believe that the lawsuit is just purely for money? Because, I mean, he's not suing his family, technically. I think he would be suing the publishing company. Now... Everything I mentioned, nothing has come from David. David, this isn't David's perspective at all whatsoever. Last time I checked, Carl was actually working on a book with David called Alone in the Valley. And it's the only place that I know of besides the supposed interviews that Jared Brittle, the author of The Demon in Connecticut, has. This is the only place where David actually gives his account of what happens. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't possessed. If he was possessed as a kid and was traumatic and a lot of stuff happened, time goes by and then your brother's like, actually, know they took advantage of you and you're mentally ill and you had problems, now we got you help, like you're on medication, you're fine. That's an easier pill to swallow in some ways than being like, you're possessed by Satan. And like maybe they're like they thought you're possessed but you really weren't and then they thought they could help make money and get Arnie off. Like there's a way that Carl could spin the whole situation to David and be like your childhood memories are wrong and this is actually what was happening. Especially if he was in that much distress he probably doesn't remember it most or if anything that happened. But until this book comes out Alone in the Valley we don't know David's side of the story. And so this, this was a doozy. I figured I had to start off with this one because it incorporates so much of what I love. True crime, murder, it has the demon possessions, the Catholic church, and some family drama afterwards. I will say, based off the episodes I have prepared, this is gonna be the most convoluted one. So I hope you guys will stay with me because at the end of the day, we don't really know what happens. Maybe Arnie was possessed Or maybe he was only possessed by the spirits of wine. I've never heard of a wine rage murder, I have to say. That's a new one, too. Thank you guys so much for listening. This was the demon murder trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson and the possession of David Gallitz. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and rate if you like the podcast. If you don't like this, then, you know, don't rate. You don't need to put bad juju into the world, okay? If this podcast will teach you anything, you don't need more negativity. But thank you so much. You can find ghost stories on any of your local streaming sites, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn. And you can also find us on Instagram. I'm going to try to upload photos related to each one of these episodes so you guys can get visuals as well if you're so inclined. Thank you so much for listening and happy Halloween.